Welcome back, one and all, to the Hiccups in History podcast. For those of you who have been eagerly awaiting my return, I give my sincerest apologies for the delay. Life is, as they say, a pain. And as a grad student trying to finish a degree, sometimes what we love to do needs to take a back seat to what we need to do. But I am back now and ready to get back into the thick of things. Before we get started, I have an announcement. I was lucky enough to guest co-host two podcast episodes on the History's B-Side podcast. The episode titles are The Very Hungry Frenchman and One Czar, Two Czar, Dead Czar, New Czar. You can find the History's B-Side on all podcasting platforms or at historiesbside.com. I highly recommend checking out those two episodes as well as the rest of their catalog of episodes. If you like my content, you will like theirs too. I guarantee it. Have you ever had just the worst day? And I'm not talking about a day where you woke up on the wrong side of the bed so the day started out bad, but the kind of day that starts out looking like it's going to be a good day. A day where you might have slept a little funny and woke up a bit groggy, but you made a killer cup of coffee and just the most perfectly toasted toast to ever be toasted. Then, after consuming this amazing meal, you finally started that one project you've been putting off for years and years. And so, you got to work, and after a long, hard morning of work, you sit back to admire your progress. When suddenly, a man kicks down your door and tries to shoot you, but misses. And then another man kicks down another door and tries to shoot you, but he misses too. And then a third guy jumps through a window and tries to shoot you, but he misses. And then a fourth guy blows up the house next door thinking it was your house. And then a fifth guy blows up your living room, but you're in the garage. And finally, a sixth guy jumps through another window and blows you up. You ever have one of those days? No? Just me? All jokes and long-winded analogies aside, what I just described was essentially the day that Tsar Alexander II of Russia had. Except, instead of a single, no-good-very-bad day, Alexander II had a no-good-very-bad decade and a half, over the course of which he survived five separate attempts on his life, plus two more planned assassinations which were foiled or fell through, and one final act which eventually claimed his life in spectacular and bloody fashion. But we get ahead of ourselves. Let us start from the top. Tsar Alexander II was born Alexander Nikolaevich. And I'm going to warn you all right now, I am terrible at pronouncing Russian, but I will do my best. Alexander was the son of the, at the time, Grand Duke Nikolai Pavlovich, who would one day become Tsar Nicholas I, and his mother Alexandra, formerly Princess Charlotte of Prussia. Fun fact, the marriage of Alexander's parents is the point where the Romanov dynasty, and by extension Russia, entered what I have dubbed the Victorian European royal family. Basically, through intermarriage, pretty much every monarchy in Europe by the time of World War I would be connected to the British monarchy and could trace their lines back to Queen Victoria of England, aka the Grandmother of Europe. And unlike the inbreeding of the Habsburg dynasty, the Victorian European royal family suffered no genetic degradation of the bloodline. Except for the hemophilia. You can't win them all. As for young Alexander, he was born to the aforementioned Nicholas and Alexandra while Nicholas was still Grand Duke. The child Alexander was raised by two schools of thought, the absolutist authoritarianism of his father and the romantic idealistic liberalism of his tutor, the poet Vasily Andreevich Zukovsky. This split would come to define the future Tsar and influence the events which would lead to both his greatest triumph and his future downfall. 
Alexander's father took the throne in 1825 and proceeded to do, well, nothing really. Well, okay, that is unfair. He did less than nothing. You see, Nicholas I of Russia, as I stated before, was an autocrat. And as such, he viewed all change as the devil's work and saw himself as the father of Russia, whose job it was to protect his subjects from foreign threats as well as domestic disturbances even if those disturbances were calls for improvement. In fact, he especially was to protect against those because to a paternal autocrat, nothing is more dangerous to his subjects than the ideas of freedom and self-determination. I mean, come on, peasants can't think for themselves. If they do, they will do such crazy things like ask for a say in government or lower taxes or to not be serfs anymore. No, no, the Tsar must protect his subjects, even from themselves. This stagnant and often regressive stance led to Nicholas being dubbed the man who froze Russia for 30 years. And during those 30 years, the Russian people, well, more specifically the Russian nobility and educated upper-middle class, watched as Europe was rocked by revolution and change. Autocratic regimes all over Europe were struggling to keep their people repressed as waves of revolution rolled over Europe, culminating in 1848 with the springtime of the people, which while it failed initially, laid the bedrock for much more successful revolutions later down the line. During this time of political revolution, industrial revolution also hit Europe. Radiating out of the British Isles, the industrial revolution slowly transformed agricultural Europe into industrial Europe. This revolution of industry would alter the economic, political, and most importantly, military landscapes of Europe. Railroads, more modern firearms, early machine guns, and advanced artillery all became commonplace across Europe, except, of course, in Russia. This stagnation was on full display when the Crimean War broke out. The first one in 1853, not to be confused with the more recent Crimean conflict of 2014. A lot of things happen in Crimea. The Crimean War is a hiccup in history all on its own, but the long and short of it is this. Some people in Crimea were being repressed for religious reasons. The Russians didn't like that, so they sent troops to knock the Ottoman Empire around on behalf of the oppressed people. On paper, this was supposed to be another slugfest between the old rivals, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. But the powers of Europe saw that the sick man of Europe, the Ottomans, were not doing so hot and could actually be potentially toppled by the Russians. If this war took place maybe a hundred years earlier, then the British and French and others would have joined the Russians in a sort of crusade against the Ottomans. But in this new age of politics, the balance of power was more important, and if the Russians won the war, it would seriously destabilize that balance of power. So the British and the French, and a couple other European powers, did something that probably had many old kings, crusaders, and popes spinning in their graves so fast you could power a city with them. They joined the Ottomans against the Russians. Still trying to keep a very long story short, the stagnation of Russia brought on by Tsar Nicholas led to the mighty Russian Empire being absolutely crushed. Outdated equipment and tactics would lead to a numerically superior Russia being bested by a force which was smaller but better equipped and with new tactics. Also, another fun fact, the famed Last Charge of the Light Brigade takes place during this war. One year and five months into the war, Tsar Nicholas I died, leading to Alexander becoming Tsar Alexander II of Russia. 
The newly minted Tsar attempted to continue the war, but the losses and humiliation were too much, and in 1856, one year after taking the throne, the Tsar sued for peace. Not having the best start to his reign, Alexander took the teachings of his tutor and the lessons learned from watching his father and set to work reforming the empire. Alexander II was, on one hand, a liberal reformer, looking to better the lives of his citizens and to advance the fortunes of his empire. Yet, on the other hand, he was an autocrat, wary of change and determined to do things his way. As such, his reforms took a unique approach and happened in fits and starts. For example, he reinstituted and strengthened conscription in the army in an effort to bolster the losses from the war, which is a very autocratic thing to do. Yet he also reformed the judicial system, creating for the first time a trial-by-jury system in Russia as well as giving more autonomous power to the local governments in his lands, a very liberal move. This ping-ponging approach to reform would continue throughout his reign, but culminated in what he is ultimately remembered for the liberation of the serfs. To make an extremely long story short, serfdom is basically slavery light. Serfs are bound to the land upon which they are born. They are forced to work the land of the landowning nobles. They get to, usually, keep some crops to eat, and if the harvest is really good, or if they have a good feudal lord over them, they can even keep some to sell. This system was always terrible. It usually only worked for a short time, immediately following its implementation, before the oppression and stagnation of the population gets to the point that rebellions start to crop up, as well as general economic stagnation due to a huge portion of the population being stuck in one place, doing one thing for generations, with no hope of actually being able to better themselves or participate in the economy as anything other than suppliers without profits. Additionally, serfdom is terrible for agriculture because it means that the peasants are forced to work one plot of land instead of being able to rotate plots of land in between seasons, which tends to lead to frequent famines. The serfs themselves have obviously been agitating for change for centuries, but their voices usually either fell on deaf ears or fell on the wrong non-deaf ears who then cut off their tongues. But with the rise in the educated liberal elites, ranging from professors to lawyers, merchants, and even nobles, the call for change had steadily grown, even in stagnant Russia. Alexander heard these calls for change and took his usual skeptical look at the situation and found that if he liberated the serfs, he could solve a ton of problems in the empire as well as appease some of the liberals he had yet to impress with his reforms. So, in 1861, Tsar Alexander II declared the Emancipation Act, which abolished serfdom in Russia, earning him the moniker, the Tsar Liberator. Now, before we pat him on the back too hard, this reform is still a reform by Alexander II, a man split between autocracy and liberalism. So, while he freed the serfs, he also placed them on a payment plan called Redemption Payments where a portion of their income would go to paying off their former lords for loss of labor on account of them being freed. But to help them pay the debt, they were also given land to work. So, two steps forward, one step back. Now, at this point in a book or the history of another nation, the story would usually go, the Tsar Liberator was the first in a long line of reform-minded Tsars, who, over the course of a few generations, slowly transformed Russia into a modern, constitutional monarchy which lives on to this day. 
That would be the storybook ending. But real life is rarely as clean. You see, as a result of the rise of industrial capitalism in the West, a Prussian man with a massive beard got fed up with it all and decided to write some books and pamphlets on how he felt the world should be and how the world would eventually evolve. This man was named Karl Marx, and over time his works would come to inspire the next wave of revolution, the Socialist Revolution. The young socialists saw all the Tsar had done and were not satisfied. They wanted him to go further, faster. They wanted revolution the way only young, fired-up radicals can. Now, the vast majority of socialists at this time were content to move at a quote-unquote reasonable pace. Sure, they thought the Tsar could and should go further, but they themselves could only be so loud and affect so much with words. So, they set about trying to educate the elites and the masses to the ideals of socialism and fermenting a revolution which would take place down the line once they had enough strength to overthrow the Tsar in one mass uprising. Some of them wanted to wait even longer than that would take. They first wanted to help industrialize Russia, turn it into a capitalist society, and then overthrow that version of Russia. But amongst these more... I hesitate to say peaceful, but compared to what's about to happen, the majority seem downright pacifistic, so let's just stick with peaceful. <clears throat> but amongst these more peaceful socialists, there was a small minority. This minority was comprised of young radicals, angry at the world in a way only young people can be, and looking for a way to lash out at the injustices of the world. These radicals would be slowly ostracized by the wider revolution. And so, clinging to each other, and without voices to calm them or try to make them see reason, an echo chamber was created. And within this echo chamber, one voice became amplified by many, and soon an idea became a war cry. Death to the Tsar. Death to the Tsar. Death to the Tsar. Death to the Tsar. So, a group named, oh boy, here we go, <clears throat> Nordonia Vodia, or the People's Will, set in motion multiple plans to assassinate Tsar Alexander II. On April 4th, 1866, Tsar Alexander woke up and decided he wanted to go for a walk. As he was walking, a crowd formed at a respectful distance to watch him as he went into his carriage. As Alexander was walking, a shot rang out. The Tsar ducked, the mob convulsed, a gunman was apprehended by the crowd and handed over to the royal guards. The gunman, one Dimit wait a minute, Dimitri? What are you doing still alive? Oh wait. Dimitri Karkazov. False alarm, everyone. It's not another false Dimitri. For more context, check out the History's B-Side podcast episode, which I was in. Link in the description. As I was saying, the gunman, Dmitry Karkazov, reportedly of minor Russian nobility, he was inspired by Marx and fell into the People's Will echo chamber and decided to try and kill the Tsar. Now, something to note here is that there's a bit of historical discrepancy. Most sources I have found state that Dmitry simply missed his shot, and before he could fire another one, the crowd nabbed him. But... Some sources point to a peasant-born hatmaker's apprentice named Osip Komisarov, saying he actually jostled Dmitri's arm, causing him to miss. Some of these sources say that he did this as an accident. Some say he did it on purpose. 
Some say he was never actually there and was later commended as a political tool used by the Tsar and held up as proof that the people still loved him. Whatever happened, Dmitry missed, was arrested, he was tried, and hanged five months later. He was 26 years old. Now, this should have spooked the Tsar a bit, but he simply chalked it up as something every leader has to deal with nowadays and went about as if someone hadn't just tried to shoot him. Then the second attempt happened one year later in May 1867. At the time, the Tsar was visiting the World's Fair in Paris in 1867 and was guest of Emperor Napoleon III, who is just a walking hiccup in history. While on a carriage ride one day, a disgruntled Polish radical named Anton Berezovsky ran up to the Tsar's carriage, which also contained the Tsar's son and Emperor Napoleon III, and then shot at them. Hold up. How does that even happen? Like, it's one thing to have a dude make his way through a crowd and take a pot shot at a political figure. It's another to have two heads of state for two of the world's superpowers in an open-top carriage in the middle of Paris and have a guy get within 10 feet of the carriage before opening fire and having no one stop him. <sighs> Let's break down what should have happened versus what did happen. We have two heads of state and an heir in one carriage. So maybe let's get some cover on that carriage. Second, it's Paris, the most revolutionary city in the world. So maybe let's triple the cavalry detachments and foot troops, please. And for the love of all that is good, let's not let a guy get within 10 feet of the carriage, please. Within 20 feet, he should have been tackled or, I guess, run through by a saber in this day and age. But still, come on, people, think! <sighs> anyway, Anton Berezovsky ran up and opened fire. And his gun explodes, sending the bullet into a nearby horse, which is just unfair to the horse. The crowd surged forward and, uncharacteristic for a Paris crowd, did not tear him limb from limb, but instead simply arrested him. Young, 21-year-old Anton was revealed to be mad at the Tsar for the recent violent suppression of revolution in Poland. Unlike poor Dmitri, though, Anton was arrested and tried, but not executed. Instead, he was sent to a labor camp in Siberia for 40 years, which is kind of like being executed, but slowly, and you get to live afterwards. So, at this point, one would think that the Tsar would, after two close calls at the hands of would-be assassins, take steps to ensure his own safety. But no, not Tsar Alexander II. No, he remained stubbornly, fatalistically, unperturbed by the attempts on his life. So much so was this man's calm undamaged, that he insisted on walking around the Winter Palace grounds, alone, with no bodyguards. And as if tempting fate, a third assassin took his shot. Five of them, actually. On April 2nd, 1879, 32-year-old Alexander Soloviev walked up within 12 steps, 12 steps of the Tsar and shot at him and missed. The Tsar did a very un thing 
but a smart thing, and he booked it in the opposite direction as fast as he could. But Solaviv was younger and faster and caught up to the Tsar and shot at him two more times and missed both times. A nearby guard charged up and slashed at the assassin, and the assassin got off two more shots, missing those as well, and was then captured, tried, and hanged. I am starting to think that Tsar Alexander was able to, through pure stubbornness, manifest a sort of electromagnetic field around him which deflected bullets. Because statistically speaking, three people cannot be that bad of shots to have missed him so many times. Anton gets a pass because his gun blew up, but Solaviv and Dmitri were both nobles. They have no excuse to be that lousy of shots. So, at this point, I think the assassins have come to the same conclusion I have, because they switched tactics, ditched the guns, and upgraded to bombs. Specifically, they made plans to target the Tsar's train while it was making its way from Crimea through St. Petersburg into Moscow. So, to ensure that nothing went wrong, they set up three bombs along the route. November 1879, the Tsar's train set up from its station in Crimea, and the first bomb was bypassed entirely due to a change in rail lines. Okay, one failure but they still have two more, and the second bomb was a dud. So it all came down to the third bomb, which was placed on the home stretch to Moscow. Now, at some point along the final stretch, due to some malfunction of some kind, they had to swap around some cars and train placements, which the assassins were unaware of. So, when the train passed over the bomb, and they blew up the train, they actually blew up a train car full of fruit instead of the Tsar. Upset but undeterred by this miss, the assassins poured their efforts into a new plan, and the Tsar remained blissfully, stubbornly unperturbed. In September 1879, a 22-year-old carpenter named Stepan Kultrin applied for and got a job as a carpenter in the Winter Palace in Moscow. Now with unrestricted access to the... Wait. Unrestricted and unsupervised access to the Tsar's Winter Palace? What? He was allowed unrestricted access to the Tsar's Palace after, at the time, four assassination attempts? It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Bothers me. It bothers me a lot. Why was he allowed unrestricted access that was unsupervised access to the palace, where he was able to amass 70 pounds of TNT? This man was allowed to amass 70 pounds of TNT in the Tsar's basement without anybody noticing. <sighs> I don't even know what makes me more upset. The fact that he got this far, unnoticed, or the fact that he misses. Yeah, on February 5th, 1880, Tsar Alexander was supposed to meet with Prince Alexander of Hesse, but the prince ran late. The assassin didn't know this, so he blew up the bombs two floors below the dining area, but didn't kill the Tsar or the prince. He did kill 11 guards and wounded 56 other people, but no Tsar and no prince. And 
In the chaos, Stepan managed to escape, which at this point does not surprise me. Finally, Tsar Alexander II had enough of this no-good, very-bad time and assigned Count Mikhail Loris Medikov to eradicate people's will and all other terrorist groups. It took five different assassination attempts, three shootings, and two bombs to finally get Tsar Alexander to sit up and go, hmm, maybe my life is in danger. I should probably do something about that. But this reaction was too little, too late. One year later, in March 1881, the Tsar would finally be felled by the assassin's knife. Or, in this case, assassin's suicide bomber. In March of 1881, the Tsar was riding around in a bulletproof carriage he was gifted by Napoleon III who clearly valued the Tsar's safety more than the Tsar did. While on a ride around St. Petersburg, a bomb detonated near the carriage, killing several guards and civilians, and wounding many more. Amidst the chaos, some reports say that the Tsar got out of the carriage to aid the wounded, while others say he stayed inside. Given his track record for stubborn obliviousness to his own well-being, I'm inclined to believe that he got out of the carriage. Regardless, another bomber named Ignacy... What? What is that? That is... That is not a word or, or a name. I, I don't even know where to start. <sighs> Screw it. I need an expert on this one. Conrad! Why in the name of Shviatovit have you summoned me? How do you pronounce this name? Oh. Well, uh, what's in it for me? I'll give you a larger role in the next episode. Bet. Okay, let me see the name. Here's the name. Hrenyevetsky. One more time? Hrenyevetsky. Yeah, I think I'll just stick with Ignacy. Thanks again, Conrad. See you next episode. Bye! Wait, you promised me 60 seconds of air- Where was I? Oh yes, assassinating the Tsar. So, as Tsar Alexander stood outside the carriage tending to the wounded, another assassin, the aforementioned Ignasi, ran up to the Tsar and detonated another bomb, killing himself and mortally wounding the Tsar, who, by all reports, was blown basically to smithereens, and clung to life with his trademark stubbornness for another few hours before dying. Thus ends the life of Tsar Alexander II the Tsar Liberator. Ironically, earlier that very day, the Tsar had signed off on the promulgation of a constitution and the creation of two legislative commissions, the first steps towards a constitutional monarchy. Now, these were not representative legislative bodies, but they were close enough. It was a start. But the people's will could not wait. The Tsar was killed, and sadly, after the Tsar was dead, his son, Alexander III, would take over, renege on the Constitution, and usher in an era of revolutionary repression and a hardline return to absolute divine right autocracy. If only the Tsar Liberator had an ounce of self-preservation in his whole body, maybe the Socialist Revolution would have been put off. Maybe the Russians would have become a constitutional monarchy. Maybe World War I would have been avoided. Who knows? But let this be a lesson to everyone. 
If someone is trying to kill you, don't give them five tries before you do something about it. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.